Romans chapter 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 1. As we're reading this, I want you just to be looking for the theme of Paul's heart in this paragraph. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, the word is kata echo. Echo means to hold. Kata means down. And so in many translations, it's to hold or to suppress, but it's to hold down, literally, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. And that's the the preposition is in. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and divine nature or Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, that's referring to everything that man is doing with the truth, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the flesh of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God. In other words, they had it. They exchanged it for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, like the therefore, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, it's not that they didn't understand that they couldn't understand. It wasn't that they were unable to understand. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, 
undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judges. You can be seated. I hope that you saw the theme or several themes in this passage of Scripture. It's not that man is incapable or unable to respond to the light that God gives us. Man is not born in a condition of a corpse in the sense that he doesn't understand, doesn't perceive what God is really like. The verse in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that says, you are dead in your trespasses does not imply that the unbeliever is unable to acknowledge that he's separated from God. It doesn't imply that the unbeliever is a corpse, like spiritually, who is unable to understand and to perceive and to know what God is like and what God expects of us. Man is totally unable to save himself. Man is totally unable to remedy the sin problem, but man is not unable and incapacitated to acknowledge that he needs Christ because he has no righteousness of his own. Those are two separate issues, and sometimes they are conflated into one. Just because I cannot do anything to save my wretchedness does not mean that I cannot admit that I need to trust someone who has the righteousness for me. And that's what Paul is explaining here. No one is born a reprobate from birth, unable to comprehend God. And because of that, man is genuinely culpable for his sin. Man is genuinely responsible for his choices. He could have done otherwise, but man has chosen to rebel and to suppress and to not acknowledge God for who he is. God's righteousness is revealed in the simple gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For herein is the righteousness of God revealed. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel that you cannot save yourself. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel in that God has a perfect plan, a perfect Savior who will stand in your stead. And this is the righteousness that God is required of you. And there's nothing that you can do in your own effort. This morning, I want to make it clear that faith is not a work. Faith is not an effort. Faith is letting go of your own striving, trying to climb the rope on your own power, and it's letting go so that Christ can catch you. Faith and works are diametrically opposed in the Bible, so faith is not a work. 
Faith is something that you and I trust the work of somebody else. And I also want to say this this morning and make it very clear. Faith does not merit your salvation. Faith does not make you somehow adding to what God has done. Those are two separate decisions again. One is my decision to trust in what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. The decision to save is all of God. Just because I say that I must believe, that does not imply that I am adding anything to salvation. I add nothing. I am trusting the complete work of Christ. Those, again, are two separate decisions. The prodigal, when he comes to himself and he says, I had it better in my father's house. That was his decision. The decision to go home was his decision. The father's decision to forgive him, to put the ring on his finger, to put a robe on his back, to kill the fatted rack. That was totally the father's choice. Salvation is all of God. So let's do not conflate those two decisions. This is very, very essential to what biblical Christianity is. Because some people are being told that you cannot come to God until God first gives you this irresistible impulse to choose to come to Him. If you are waiting for that, if the lost person is waiting for that, He will never come. In fact, you have got the greatest excuse for rejecting God because God has rejected me and God does not want me. But Paul takes away every excuse possible in this passage of scripture you are inexcusable oh man whoever you are who judges another because you do the exact same things in the parable that jesus told about giving the talents the one man said i knew you were a just steward i knew or i don't know if that's the right word the steward is the one who gets the gift i knew that you were a just um I don't know even the right word for this this morning. Master, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, church. <laughs> you, are the, you are a just master, and you are a strict master, and you reap where you have not sown, and you have high expectations. So what I did, I went and I hid that gift so I could give it back to you. And he says, oh, you wicked servant, you should have at least put it in the bank where I could have gotten interest from it. And he says this, he says, you are now judged out of your own mouth. Because you knew what kind of master I was. You knew that I expected a return. You knew that I wanted you to invest this and to do something with it. So the man was completely without an excuse. Why? Because he knew exactly what his master expected from him. And we, as God's creation, we know what our God is like. We know what morality is like. We know what family is like. We know what perversion is like. We know what evil is like. Therefore, out of our own mouths, God will judge us. And we cannot say, God, I'm going to put this back on you because you reprobated me from birth. You blinded me from birth. You, you deafened my ears from birth and I could not hear your voice. Psalm 19 says there is no language. There is no voice where God is not heard. People often ask me, well, what about the heathen in Africa? Did they not hear? Well, they don't know about Christ. They don't have a Bible. This passage of Scripture tells us that if they will respond to the light that God has given them, God promises to give them more light and that they are without excuse. There is nobody who's not heard the voice of God. There is no one who does not understand the divine nature because God has put it 
in us. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. A dear friend asked me a couple weeks ago, talking with my wife and I, how can I prove God's existence to my spouse? And my spouse demands I can't use the Bible. That's a difficulty. That, I mean, that's the basis of our faith, isn't it? But there is an answer to that, and the answer is simple. We can use logic, and we can use truth. Because our God is Lagos. In the beginning was Lagos. In the beginning was logic. In the beginning was truth. That is our God, and we can explain God without using the Bible by simple logic and by truth. Now, I'm going to pick that up later on in, in my introduction here. But before we get there, into the specifics of the text, I want us to look at this big section that Paul is now introducing with the word for in verse 18. What Paul is doing, he's not digressing, he's not changing the topic, he is now helping you and I understand the importance of using God's wrath in presenting the gospel, in presenting the good news to people. The good news is the power of God to salvation. The good news is God's revelation to us that we can be righteous before God. But before a person will ever come to that and see their need, they must see the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness. And so from 118, with that word for, he's now helping us understand why it is that we desperately need God's righteousness. That's what he's doing here. And he's setting this up, and he's got big chunks all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. This is one long explanation of why God's wrath is revealed. And so the first section deals with what man intuitively knows about God and what creation has showed us about God. Then you go to chapter 2, and then he says the law, the law of God takes away every excuse. The Jewish person had the moral law of God. They had the objective truth, the absolute unchanging law of God. And if you didn't have the law of God and you were a Gentile, you had the unchangeable written word of God on your conscience. So again, in chapter 2, he takes away all excuse. And then in chapter 3, he explains the depravity of man outside of faith alone. When you try to please God, he says, your mouth is an open sepulcher. When you think that you are seeking God, he says, no, no one seeks God without God first seeking him. And so he takes away all of that excuse. And then in 321, he finally comes back to this topic of justification by faith alone. Where is boasting? It's excluded. By what law? There is no law. But by the law of faith and its witness to you in the law and the prophets that this is what God has expected. So this is a big, big section of scripture going to, trying to explain to us why it is we need the righteousness of God imputed to us alone. And this is, so this is the first section that we're going to look at this morning. True preaching of the gospel can only occur when there is a clear understanding that God's wrath is revealed against mankind. Modern evangelism, seeker-friendly services, 
They are devoid of a real gospel presentation because Jesus is nothing more than a panacea. Jesus is nothing more than somebody who comes along to give you a happy and prosperous life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are fallen and we are lost. We are depraved without a Savior and that we are in desperate need to turn to Jesus Christ and to repent toward God and to confess I am a sinner and to put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you will never get there by the message that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because if God has a wonderful plan for my life and I'm living in sin and I'm living it up and I'm robust in my sin... Why would I want to come to God and he's going to take me all that, all, all my wonderful life away? But if you understand that you are under God's divine wrath, God's divine judgment, and you have absolutely no excuse, that will get you to think about what the gospel's about. To understand God's righteousness by faith, we must first understand that our works, law-keeping, all fall short of the glory of God. God does not reap wrath where his truth has never been sown. Let me say that again. God does not reap his wrath on anyone where his truth has not been sown. There will be no one who stands before the judgment seat of God and says, God, you did not give me enough light. You did not give me enough truth to respond to your wonderful grace and goodness. Jesus said this in John 15, 22. He said, if I had not spoken to you, you would not have had sin. In other words, I have given you truth. I have given you life. And if I had not done that, you wouldn't have sin. Sin is the consequence of rejecting God's righteous truth to us. And now Jesus goes on to say, therefore you have no cloak, no excuse, no pretense at all for your sin. John 15, 22. We are living in an age that is known as postmodernism. In Modern America and the Western world in general is living in a post-Christian era. And that's, that's just a simple fact. And we must challenge this pragmatism, this paradigm shift with logic and truth. You often hear the objection, if there is a God, why is there so much evil in this world? Well, that very question is a confession that there has to be a God. It begs the question, where does good come from? Is there a moral objectivity that I can base evil and good on? And if there is, that means there is a divine law giver who is absolute, who is holy, and who is just. They have just given the very reason to believe in God. Secondly, the question assumes that goodness is possible. This is to beg the question. There are several other questions that we need to pose to those who reject the idea of theism. And they're, they're simple. We're going over this in Sunday school about creation. One of the questions that, that we logically should pose is, how is life begotten from non-life? Explain that one to me. 
How does consciousness, awareness, spring from unconsciousness? How does sexuality arise from asexual or non-sexual creatures? Next, there are certain realities that those who reject God must be forced to accept. And they may be uncomfortable, but we need to drive these home to people. You cannot... I got my notes out of order here. So just hold on. Or maybe I'm missing a page. Who knows? Okay. We'll get them in order. That's an argument for God. You got to have order <laughs> if you're going to communicate. Okay. So what do we need to press this person with? There is no objective morality. I often hear Rick say this in simple terms, but I'll just give you an example. The Nuremberg trials, the German lawyers were very clever, and they said that you cannot impose your values and your morality upon us. We are defining what is right and wrong. We are defining what is good and evil, and you have no right to impose on us. And if it's our right and our free choice to expunge six million Jewish people, who are you to impose your morality on us? Now, if there is no God, they have an absolute tight case shut. But the author or the, the lawyer for the allies cleverly came back and he said, there are universal laws that intuitively we all accept. And that is because there is a lawgiver. You see, if there is no God, there is no moral objectivity. Human trafficking, there's nothing wrong. Slavery, child molestation, rape, they're only immoral if you have an objective, absolute lawgiver, and that is the definition of God. He is an absolute, divine, holy law giver. Second thing we need to press this person is there is no ultimate hope without God. Oh, we might have hope for next week. I might have hope that I'm going to get over a sickness. I might have hope that I'm going to get a better job. And everybody experiences those things, but there is no ultimate hope without God. All of your life will be erased at the grave if there is no God. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, You Gentiles, you were, in effect, no hope without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12. The third thing that we need to press is that life has no ultimate meaning. We are the product of random material processes the universe will eventually die of what is known as heat death. I probably should have talked to Robert and Soren before I got too deep into this. But heat death, and correct me if I'm wrong, heat death is when the universe reaches a maximum point of entropy. Entropy is the winding down. And if the universe is winding down and winding down, eventually we're going to hit this maximum point where it can't wind down anymore, right? And scientists call this heat death. We arrive at a state of equilibrium. When this happens, the universe can no longer extract any energy for producing work. 
And so we have no ultimate meaning because we came from nothing and we are going to return to nothing. So those are some consequences of unbelief in a creator God. So before a person will seek God's righteousness, they must understand the utter despair mankind is in without God's righteousness. So God's wrath is revealed from heaven. He reveals his wrath. The first reason is because man suppresses truth. That suppression of truth is innate. In other words, it's inborn. It's a very part of the fabric of being human. You go to a college campus today and you ask a philosophy professor to define what is human and they cannot give you an answer. You ask a Supreme Court justice what it means to be a woman and they cannot give you an answer. This is, this is an exercise in futility for them. It's, it's bizarre. What are they doing? They are suppressing in a truth that we all know. We are created in the image of God. That's why man has worth. That's why after even man fell in the garden, man did not lose the image-bearing responsibility because in Genesis chapter 9, it says, He who sheds death sheds man's blood. By man's blood, he shall die. Why? Because you are created in the image of God. So just because Adam fell, Augustine has it wrong. We did not lose the image-bearing responsibility in being created in God's likeness. The Bible teaches that clearly in John 1, 3. All things were made by him. Jesus, everything, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. For in Jesus Christ was life, and the life was what? It was the light of men. That's our creator, and he's put it within us. John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness of that light. Why? So that all men, not some, so that all men might believe through him and have life. John chapter 1 again, verses 8 and 9. John came to bear witness of that light. He was not that true light, but he bore witness of that true light. Listen to this. This is so clear. He was bearing witness of the true light that lights every man. That means women too. It's generic. Every single person that comes into the world. There's not a one of us that does not have an innate knowledge of God, and we suppress that truth. So what happens when we suppress truth? Romans 1.21 tells us what happens when we suppress truth. Look at that verse with me. Because although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor, this is what happens, nor were they thankful. But what happens? They become futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are darkened. So when man rejects truth, when man suppresses truth, the next thing that that leads to is greater darkness. So John 1 starts out saying that God is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. He is the one who gives life, and that is the light of man. And then John goes on to say in John 5.33, you sent to John. That is John the Baptist. You sent to John. He was the one who was to bear witness of the light, remember. He wasn't the true light. 
that everybody's supposed to believe in him, but you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist has. He was a what? He was a burning and shining lamp. And you, this is the key phrase, you were willing to rejoice for a while in that light. This is a theme throughout the gospel of John. You see Jesus coming to his own, his own rejecting him, Jesus reaching out, Jesus teaching in parables, Jesus doing everything he can, miracle after miracle, and they are suppressing truth, and they were willing for a while, but when they rejected truth, they went into greater darkness. And it ends up in judicial hearting. That's when God judges the unbeliever and says, I'm going to just let you do what you want to do. That's where it leads up to. They harden their heart and they become foolish and their hearts are darkened. John goes on to say later on in John 12, 44, or John 12, 40, he, God, what does God do then? Why is the unbeliever who's at this point, who's given over to their own devices, Jesus says that he has blinded the minds. He, God, has hardened their hearts lest they should See with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. In other words, said God said, I would have healed you. You should have responded to the truth. You should have came to me. But now, because you've rejected over and over again, I have blinded your eyes. I have calloused your self-calloused hearts. God's wrath is revealed because we suppress the truth. God's wrath is revealed because man is without excuse. I've already talked about those that have never heard and they don't exist. Man is blameworthy. Man is culpable for his actions. He cannot put it back on God. And the first thing that man sees is God's invisible attributes. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things that are seen were not made by the things that appear. So what is he appealing to? You cannot have an infinite regress. It's illogical. So the things that we see aren't going back and back and back without an original beginner and that beginner is God and by faith we understand that we understand the invisible attributes of God his invisible attributes means that God exists outside of time God exists outside of space and God exists outside of matter and we've got the explanation in Genesis 1 1 in the beginning that's time God created the heavens. That's space. That's where he's going to put his matter. He created the heavens and he created the earth. In that simple statement, God says, I was there. I am a spirit God. I was before time began. I was before space ever was imagined. And I was here before matter was ever conceived of. That is our awesome God. The cell theory. The cell theory simply says this. Every cell comes from a preceding cell. It's the chicken and the egg dilemma. You have to have a beginning God. Our God, who exists outside of time, space, and matter, is unchanging. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord God, I change not. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Secondly, we understand not just his invisible attributes from creation, we understand his eternal power from creation. God is the first cause. There's a law in science that says a cause is greater than its effect. You think about the effect of creation. I mean, it is so majestic. It's unfathomable, the power of our universe. We can't even, we can't even understand the, the energy that's in tides, in the wind, in fossil fuels, and on and on I could go. And so the cause is greater than the effect. Our God is greater than all the power that you and I can see, all the windmills, all the generators. What kind of God is this? And we understand this from creation. Did you know that you can put 1.3 million Earths into the sun? That is a whopping big energy plant, isn't it? That is how, and our God is more powerful than that. It's, it's unconceivable what our God is like. One bolt of lightning can power a household for an entire month. Well, I wish I could just hook up to one of those lightning bolts, get rid of my electric bill. But that's how powerful our God is. And so man is without excuse. We know that there's not an infinite regress. We know that this God must be all-powerful, but we also understand his divine nature, his Godhead, that God has to be omniscient, that God knows everything from the beginning to the end. You think about the intelligence of God. It is infinite. DNA, the orderliness of matter, demands an intelligence. Matter and energy do not have within themselves the capacity to order. Matter of itself moves towards disorder. I want to give you an example of the single cell. The single cell has got over 200 proteins in it. Those proteins must have amino acids, and they must be all in the right sequences. The mathematical probability of that happening by random chance is 1 in 10 to the 243rd power. I, I, that's a whole lot of zeros up there. Isn't Mathematicians call that impossible. That is the intelligence of our God. The fraction is so... Uh, uh, so small. The universe that we live in is dynamic. It's abundant, teeming with a wide variety of fauna and flora. We are perfectly interwoven into food, not just food chains, but food webs. The interdependency of symbiotic relationships defy any explanation. What came first? Again, the flower or the bee, to pollinate those flowers. They had to be created simultaneously for them to exist. There is so much evidence, scientific evidence, that is, that we can infer God's intelligence, the overwhelming evidence of creation, his power. It's a deliberate act of an all-present, all-powerful, omniscient God. Secondly, God's wrath is explained, and we see a downward progression. It starts with suppression of the truth. In other words, man practically is indifferent to God's revelation. We suppress 
the God-given light that is in us, we willfully reject that God has shown us through creation, although we knew God, we neglected to glorify God. Now, what about the believer? We often act the same way. We neglect to glorify God. For every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We as believers must consistently acknowledge and glorify God for all that he does for us. The second step in this downward progression, man moves then toward worthless speculation about the nature of God. And what happens then? They become futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts are dark. And and the third and final step is that they lean on human reasoning and professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. So what does God do? I think God's last step in his goodness, God's last step in his mercy that is so, so amazing, God gives us over. That is a step of God's wrath, but it's also a step in God's mercy. When God gives people over, it brings on the despair and loneliness that their choices inevitably will take them. God abandoning to man's own lust and his wrath is being revealed from heaven in the fact that God is turning people over to their own devices. 124, it says it, therefore God gave them up. 126, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. 28b, God gave them over to a debased mind. This is actually God's wrath. He's saying, I will let you do what you want to do, and I will let you reap the inevitable consequences of your choices. But it's also a part of God's long-suffering and mercy to bring people to themselves. We don't have time this morning, but we'll talk about it next week. But you go to chapter 2 in the same argument and verse Four, it says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, knowing that it's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance? I would like to remind you that God giving people over to their own choices and to their own lusts does not imply in any sense that God ever decrees sin or that God ever has ordained sin. That's that's an unbiblical position. And I can support that from James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that when man is tempted, let no man say he is tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted of evil. Neither does God tempt any man. And verse 14 says, man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And when Lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin runs its full course, is complete, it brings forth death. It never even entered into God's mind, Jeremiah tells us, when they were sacrificing their own children to Moloch and to Baal. It doesn't enter his mind. So we don't implicate God. We take full blame. Western culture, we are witnessing the breakdown of the family unit. 
We are witnessing moral permissiveness on a scale never, ever even imagined. Sexual perversion, sexual inversion of natural relationships, and even sexual transgenderism are all a part of God's wrath. That's what they are. That's, it's, it's, it's God's wrath being revealed from heaven. The great Christian philosopher of the 20th century, I love reading his books. I have to read them three or four times. Francis Schaeffer said this, Today's culture everywhere reflects the loneliness, despair, fragmentation, the loss of personal identity that results from the sense in man from the loss of God. For many, God is dead. And in so doing so, by killing God, man has killed himself. The last act of God's goodness and forbearance is to give people over to bring them to repentance. And again, I will refer back to the prodigal son. The prodigal son says, I don't want fellowship with you, God. I don't want fellowship with my father. I want it now. Give me my inheritance. And the father gave him over to his own desires so that he could squander it, so he could live with harlots, so he could live with drunkards, and find himself eventually in the pig pen where he came to himself. So what are some applications for you and I from this passage that we've looked at? As believers, we have been given moral light. We have been given truth. And God wants us all to respond to the truth that has been given to us. Otherwise, we will stunt our spiritual growth. If we come to the place where we're no longer hungering for God, where we're no longer thirsting for God, God says, okay, if you're going to suppress truth, I'm not going to give you any more truth. Jesus said this in a parable in Mark chapter 4. He says, take heed what you hear, for with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So all of us as believers, because God has given us light, he holds us to a higher standard of accountability. Second, suppression of truth. We don't like to bring God's wrath in, into light. Then light will be removed from us. Same, pretty much the same point as I made before. Before we share the gospel, this is another application. Before we share the good news and the power of the gospel, we need to show people that God's wrath is revealed when we reject moral truth. We can only do this by outlining the unexplainable realities of life without God. There is no contrast between evil and good if there is no God. There is no life that can beget life without a life source. There is no consciousness without a conscious, conscious mind first creating it. We must explain the inevitable excuses of life without God or the inevitable consequences, excuse me, of life without God. No moral objectivity, no ultimate hope, no real meaning. Last, we must point out that everyone is without an excuse, capable and morally responsible to respond to truth. Creation, we need to acknowledge who God is. We will get to the objective moral law and how that works also in bringing people to Christ next week. But let's just close with prayer and pray. Pray for our country. 
We are at this point, and God wants to use you and I as salt in light in a lost generation. It's a post-Christian era. It's interesting. When Paul went into pagan areas in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17, and dealing with the pagans here, he always appealed to the witness of creation. And that's where we need to begin. Father, Lord God, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, I must acknowledge my own sin as well. I can't put it back on God. If I decide to dwell on the things of the flesh, I will die. But if I, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, I shall live. God, every one of us this morning are morally culpable before you. Every one of us are morally responsible to you. And every one of us can acknowledge and, expound and, and, and respond to the light you give us. God, that does not mean that I can change myself. God, that does not mean that I boast about anything. God, it means that I surrender and I give up all to Jesus. And I say, I need you. Father, this morning, as Christians, God, help us not to suppress truth. Those hard teachings in the Bible that we don't like, they're there for a reason. And so, God, I pray that we will accept all the teachings of Scripture, not just the smorgasbord and picking through the things that we like and the things that are easy and the things that are comfortable. God, help us to proclaim all truths to people. Father, I pray for our community. I pray, God, for northern Utah. God, I pray that we will be light bearers, that we will explain to people, you need God's righteousness because you are under God's just wrath and you have no excuse for rejecting him and his offers of love. I pray this in Jesus' name.